I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The humbling of Harvard is the puzzle in this podcast. Oldest and far the richest among American universities, Harvard is the apex, in some sense, of American intellectualism. Harvard will be a long time figuring out just how it lost a very big game that it didn't seem to know it was playing. High stakes, free-for-all, it turned out to be, with poisonous words like plagiarism and anti-Semitism threaded through the media coverage, and then in airborne ad banners and other blunt instruments. Suddenly, the president of Harvard, a black woman, as chance would have it, resigned her job under pressure, as if to confirm that something serious had indeed happened. But what in the world was this Harvard fight about? And was this the beginning or the end of a great battle? Randall Kennedy of the Harvard Law School and Diana Eck from the Divinity School are both pillars of Harvard conversations around race, religion, justice, for as long as I can remember. We'll get to measuring the damage here, Randy and Diana, but first, each one of you, please, recall the moment when you sensed, uh-oh, we're off the track, there's trouble ahead. Randy? I thought that there was tremendous trouble ahead when I heard in the halls that President Gay's job was in jeopardy. Mm. And that was after the um, congressional hearing and after she had made apologies and was trying to right herself. Uh, But the drumbeat of condemnation continued and the word went out, you better write the powers that be because they're meeting. Mm. In fact, it was a Sunday. And, you know, write, try to get friends to write. We need to get faculty members to indicate that they do not think that she ought to be replaced. And so I remember that Sunday all day long participating in writing letters and reading letters and editing letters and worry. Go back to that congressional hearing more than a week before. I heard something weird when Elise Stefanik, congressman from New York, asked Claudine Gay how Harvard rules and regulations dealt with calls for genocide against Jewish people. And I'm still waiting for somebody to say, what calls for genocide Mm -hmm. of Jewish people? I never imagined them around the Harvard campus. Diana. I could certainly speak to that because the thing that struck me most about that hearing was Elise Stefanik's, I would call it sleazy slide from talking about student slogans like Intifada or From the River to the Sea, and then after a short break, referring to that as genocide, calls for genocide. And I think none of the presidents actually responded to that by naming the fact that the rhetorical move she had made was absolutely illegitimate and comparing the slogans of students to calls for genocide at Harvard was utterly illegitimate. No one was calling for genocide. I heard it the same way you did, but I'm amazed that people didn't pick up on it. That question about calls for genocide against Jews demanded some form of elaboration, evidence, quotation. It never came 
That's true. Go back and read the hearings. I have a lot of sympathy for the presidents. They were being badgered. They were being browbeaten. There was this constant, this is a yes or no question. The fact of the matter is that the hearing was a hit. It was not aimed at getting information. It was not aimed at investigation. They had predetermined what their story was, and they were going to press, press, press to substantiate a predetermined story. And the predetermined story was that anti-Semitism is rampant at Harvard and at the University of Pennsylvania and at MIT, and the university leaders are not doing anything. They're betraying their Jewish students. That was the story that the majority of the Congress people on this hearing wanted. And they prevented, to tell you the truth, they prevented the university professors from really expressing themselves in a full, calm way. I have tremendous sympathy for the, for the professors, question, given the situation. If it were you testifying, Randy, you would have been down their throats immediately. If you were advising Claudine Gay, you would have said, be prepared for this. Why wasn't she ready? And why, frankly, were people like me completely unprepared for the charge of rampant anti-Semitism on the Harvard campus? Well, let's say one thing, that at least Claudine Gay and perhaps the others had actually been prepped by a law firm as if this were a kind of court business, just to stick to the message, it depends, it depends on the context, not to actually challenge the question. And they were, to my mind, all too well behaved Mm -hmm. not Mm. to challenge the question, because the question about genocide was never a question. And the question about slogans and anti-Semitism was simply as if everyone knew what these things meant. And I think it would have been wonderful if Claudine Gay had spoken up and say, I cannot answer this in a yes or no question, and I would challenge what you're asking me. Yeah. I would challenge her, her good faith, even her bona fides in asking that question. But It didn't come through that way in the news media. I think that you're absolutely right when you use the term too well behaved. And I think that has something to do with the testimony. Here are people, they're academics, right? They're academics, they're used to settings in which somebody speaks, another person, you know, you listen, you don't butt in, it's dialogue, it is in good faith, even when there's strong disagreement, it is in good faith. That's what they were used to. They were not really prepared for, you know, a rhetorical dogfight. They were not prepared for bullying. They were not prepared for browbeating. And I think it showed, you know, that's too bad. But again, I would would say, you know, they are people from university land. And what we had here is people from university land were ambushed in front of the cameras, and made to look bad. Yeah. That story, though, Randy, did not emerge. That it was a trap. There were a few. There were a few opinion pieces that did see this as a trap, that wrote about it as a trap, but they didn't gain the Mm -hmm. sort of traction that the sort of media weaponization of anti-Semitism did. That became true here at Harvard and around the country. 
I think the best person to have addressed this was the former director, executive director of Harvard's Hillel, Bernie Steinberg, who wrote a very powerful piece aimed at the wider Jewish population, but also at Jewish students at Harvard. For the safety and sake of Jews and Palestinians, stop weaponizing anti-Semitism. And he went on to detail how this had been done by the media and by some of their spokespeople What did he mean by the weaponization of anti-Semitism? Using anti-Semitism as a way of, and he expressed it quite clearly, a way of assuring that voices from the Jewish community and elsewhere opposing the actions of Israel and including the American support for those actions would either be delegitimized or silenced. seemed to me that case, though, got lost pretty quickly in the argument and in the smoke. It turned out that there are serious people around Harvard, including the former president of the university, Larry Summers, who's still teaching macroeconomics here at the university, but who feel that there's a mortal danger of anti-Jewish hatred on the Harvard campus today. It shocked me. Of course, he doesn't acknowledge that the genocide that most of the world sees in our time is the mass slaughter by Israel of Palestinians in Gaza. This gets left out too, but suddenly I thought, this conversation is deranged. Let's stick to the Harvard story. Please. I'm actually, I was a defender of President Gaze. I think that what happened was tragic. I do think that she made some errors. One error she made, as far as I'm concerned, is she acquiesced to this story of rampant anti-Semitism. She goes to Hillel. She convenes a special advisory committee that clearly the whole purpose of this was public relations. She was acquiescing to this idea of rampant anti-Semitism. In her comments, she said at one point something along the lines of, we've had a real big problem here, but no longer. The question I want to ask is, well, does this mean that uh, when uh, President Larry Bacow was the president of Harvard University, himself Jewish, observant, are you really seriously going to tell me that he was soft on anti-Semitism? The mm. senior fellow of the Harvard Corporation is Jewish. The person who is now taken over as the interim president, Alan Garber, is Jewish. I have colleagues, friends in every sphere of university life at every level. Yep who are highly esteemed, who've had wonderful careers. I've talked with them about this issue. This idea of rampant anti-Semitism on Harvard's campus, as far as I'm concerned, is totally, totally misleading. That is not to say, that is not to say that there aren't things that happen, that they're not anti-Semitic incidents. I'm sure there are. Do remember we're on a campus with several thousand young people, a couple of thousand other staff members, uh, professors. Things are going to happen, but the question is, is this rampant? Is this extensive? The answer is no. I think one of the things you've said, Randy, that is important to remember, I mean, Claudine Gay did issue several statements 
one after another and apologized mm. for the way her remarks were taken at the House uh, hearing and actually put herself on the line, went to Hillel a couple of times, even went to Chabad House and was present for the big setting of the table for the hostages in Harvard Yard. So she was there. She expressed her support in lots of ways. And finally, I just had to write to her and say, hey, stop apologizing. Put on your flak jacket and let's just move ahead. <laughs> and along with a, a colleague, we visited with her in her office at her invitation. What were some of the ways in which we could move from this kind of polarization into a more civic dialogue about things that people obviously differed about? I think she was prepared to do that. But I agree that the ongoing attacks were very disquieting. And by the time the corporation first met, a group of us who were garnering signatures on a short statement to the corporation managed to get 700 faculty signatures in a couple of days, urging the Harvard Corporation to support her vocally, not even think about asking her to resign. And when that happened and there was a statement of support, the attacks just kept coming. Mm. And the statement of support was grudging. I remember the next day I, I felt momentary relief because they said we unanimously support her. But then there was four paragraphs of hedging, of equivocation, of, you know, sort of indirect chastisement of her. And I must say, at that point, I felt, oh, my gosh, this support is rather soft mm. support. The Harvard Corporation did not act like the MIT trustees. The MIT trustees, very quickly, very decisively, we support our president, end. That was not the statement that was made by the Harvard Corporation. And I think, you know, it's probably the case that my sense of disquiet at the softness of their support may very well have registered with the enemies of Claudine Gay and, in, and frankly, encouraged them. Well, we've gotten right. this far. We haven't gotten yet what we want, but it's within sight. And, of course, a couple of weeks later, they did get what they wanted. Just when Claudine Gay seemed to have stabilized her situation, then came the so-called plagiarism issue. And I read all the documents had been meticulously and nastily collected. I thought, this is a phony. Plagiarism is the appropriation of the words and ideas of another person as your own. It's a very serious thing in the publishing world and the academic world, and she didn't do it, not remotely. The protocols of footnoting, she may have stepped over a meaningless line, but in terms of intent, in terms of stealing intellectual property, not a shred. My suspicions were up from then on. But I was also, I gotta say, disquieted by the Larry Summers testimony. He stayed resolutely against her. He had been upset from the beginning that she had not spoken for Harvard against the Hamas attack on Israel in the first place. Exactly why university presidents should be proclaiming on global issues, I'm not exactly sure, even Harvard. But he stuck with it. He didn't like the DEI issue either. He is personally upset that Jews on the Harvard campus do not come under the protection, so to speak, of affirmative representation. 
He's also upset that the Harvard Crimson has endorsed BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel, and he considers that to be part of his rampant anti-Semitism. I also began to wonder, though, perhaps if non-Jews like me don't understand the collective memory of real exclusion of Jews on this campus in living people's lifetimes, and that we're simply not hearing a real issue. What do you think? Let me say that I think Larry Summers was so quick on the trigger to condemn the slowness and nature of Claudine Gay's first statement that one had to look behind that. And from my experience 20 years ago, when I first heard Larry Summers speak at morning prayers, which takes place in Appleton Chapel and includes people of all religions to reflect on something for five minutes. But 20 years ago, his reflection was on the rampant anti-Semitism at Harvard. Hmm. He's been thinking about this for a long time. And he's been president of the university, not to mention treasury secretary of the United States since then, a man of immense power. But I think that issue is one that, I mean, we can give lots of reasons I think there are many people who feel that Larry Summers is sort of mad at Harvard because of his own experience with the corporation, and yet he had rather a soft landing as a university professor. But I think the other thing that you previously mentioned, the role of the corporation. When I think of all the big things that Claudine Gay's presidency has brought to the forefront, one is the nature of this corporation that has so much influence at Harvard and has done so very little in some ways to be quite transparent about, in the first place, about its investigation of the so-called plagiarism issue. And, you know, there were many ways in which that issue could have been addressed openly in the university, but it was not. It was done under the cloak of the corporation, who then decided it wasn't a big issue. And then it just kept ballooning. I think the plagiarism issue also needs to be looked at in the context of the rise of AI in academic matters generally, because it was really the weaponization of AI that began to uncover the things that were deemed to be plagiarism. And You know, Claudine Gay's thesis had been not only advised and applauded by her department here at Harvard, it had won a prize, etc. Nobody had mentioned this, but one of the things that her presidency has brought to the fore is the fact that issues of academic writing and the presence of artificial intelligence investigation needs a completely different look. And the fact that the detractors of Claudine Gay were out there all along, one Christopher Rufo and others, who basically had her in their sights, and they, in his case, said deliberately did not drop all of the plagiarism, so-called plagiarism issues until the day the corporation was meeting. I mean, it was... uh, use of AI instruments to uncover plagiarism that was done with 
but do completely we agree that there different was no intent. Plagiarism? There was no theft yes. of intellectual property. Yeah. This was done to advance the agenda of the people who were after her. And that includes people who had racist issues, people who were against diversity, equity, and inclusion, people who were, had really the university itself in their sights. Brandy? I want to go back to your, your question about the psychology. I'd like to draw an analogy between what's going on now and what was going on a few years ago during the heyday of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd. Now, a few years ago, there were people on campuses like this one that were claiming that anti-black racism was rampant. And I wrote at the time, and I said, no, you know, there's problems here like lots of places, but the fact of the matter is that in terms of race matters, uh, this university and other universities like it have changed tremendously and are tremendously welcoming. And this claim of rampant, you know, anti-black racism, as far as I'm concerned, is... And you a, would know. It's a nice line. It's, it's mow-mowing. You want certain things, you know, to put the institution on its back foot, you're making inflated claims. I think that's exactly what's happening now. And there are ways in which they're mimicking one another in the same way that the idea of racism four years ago was expanded. Similarly, the idea of anti-Semitism expanded. Just like four or five years ago, the question is, well, it doesn't matter what's actually going on. It's how I feel, sort of subjective feeling. Nowadays, same thing. It, you know, is there uh, anti-Semitism? Is it rampant? People say, well, I talk with John, and John feels besieged. Whether he should feel besieged or not is a different issue, but he feels besieged. As far as I'm concerned, in both instances, what we have here is people who have, have, yes, definitely been historically victimized. I think we ought to be realistic and understand that people who've historically been victimized are not immune from using their victimization to push their agenda. I think that's going on now. I think it was going on four years ago. There's another agenda that I just have to mention, which is that the war ongoing in Gaza. The United States supplies those 2,000-pound bombs and shells and aircraft for a war that the world sees as worse than criminal, genocidal. And that's about to be tested in the International Criminal Court. Don't we all know that this is the critique that the shaming of Harvard, the embarrassment of Harvard, is trying to serve? We've got to get off the subject of real genocide before our eyes and talk about Harvard. I think this is the point at which we ask ourselves, are we at the beginning of something exactly. or the end of something? Yeah. Because students are back now, classes will begin in another week, and the war in Gaza, 23,000 dead, children suffering amputations with no medication at all, I mean, these are the things that students involved in the Palestinian Solidarity Committee have been thinking about for quite a long time. And I think the protests involving the war in Gaza and attention to the Palestinian cause 
is something that is not going to go away. I think that will continue, and probably as long as it does, there will be people who experience this mm. um, in Randy's terms as a threat to their well-being as Jews. But actually, the Jews for Palestine, the various organizations of Jews that are supportive of Palestinian human and political rights, those are still very active. I think none of us think Claudine Gay is either anti-Semitic or soft on anti-Semitism. I think none of us believe for a moment she's a plagiarist in the real serious meaning of that, that word. Um, how do we account for the fact that she's gone? What did her in, in the end? Immediately what? after the House hearings, and maybe even before, some donors immediately began withdrawing their money and saying they would give only a dollar and not uh, continue to give major support to programs and scholarships at the Kennedy what School. What kind of donors? Are we talking about Jewish donors in particular? Pretty much. The Wexner Foundation and then, of course, the big donors who are billionaires like Bill Ackman, who have persisted in bringing up the issues that the corporation is pledged to think about. I mean, the corporation has a couple of jobs, one to appoint and protect the president of Harvard and to provide funds for the university. And I think most of them are in business. I think they do have some sense that the university is quite another matter. But I would imagine that the balance of people in the corporation are concerned about the threats to, to the donor base. I mean, it is a kind of donor activism that we haven't necessarily seen. And I did have a conversation with one of my heroes in the Harvard presidency, and that is Derek Bach. We talked about this a couple of times. And, mm. you know, he basically said that one of the reasons Harvard benefits from such a big endowment is that it doesn't have to kowtow to donor activism. But, um, you know, there may be others who are more afraid of that. Mm. It's also rich enough not to be afraid of anyone. Rich enough not to be. But let me answer your question about, you know, what happened. Please. Um, it shows the power of propaganda. It shows the power of... There were a whole bunch of people who were in cahoots in establishing this narrative. It wasn't just the people in Congress. It was news media. It was the well-off people who can tweet. It was some people within the university. I mean, it wasn't just all outsider-insider. There are people in the university who feel a tremendous sense of resentment against the whole DEI operation. Now, frankly, there are aspects of DEI, you know, I've certainly been critical of, and I think, you know, fine, but there are people who have a level of resentment that is practically unquenchable. They were ready to go after her, and when she was wounded a bit, then they really went after her. And so I think people have to really be on guard 
really be careful about these narratives. To go back to the very beginning of our conversation, why wasn't that first question challenged? Why did the presidents allow the, you know, the interrogators to get away with smuggling in a false predicate? The calls for genocide against Jewish people. That was an initial thing. But again, I don't think that people were really sort of primed for that. And I, I can understand why they weren't primed for it. My point would be, from here on out, academics, from here on out, know what's coming down the pike and know the limits, frankly, of courtesy. Sometimes you've got to put up your dukes. And, you know, I think a lot of learning has happened. Hopefully it will be learning that can take us to a better place. That is my hope. I have to say, I still have a good bit of dread. This institution has been bloodied. I would like to think that it would have the wherewithal to stand up despite its you know, being bloodied and go in a different direction, in a, in a positive direction, and make something of it. But I think more likely, and I, you know, I think more likely is that there will be a tightening up, at least for a while, that there will be contraction, Mm. that there will be a defensive crouch, that there will be a longing for safety, that there will be a big desire to stay out of the way of these people who have shown with such ruthless efficiency that they can make the university look bad in the public's mind. So I think there's a lot of potential here, but I also think that there is going to be a real penchant for going safe, and uh, I think that that will pose a big problem to our scholarly environment. Change the focus entirely, but try my thought that American public conversation which in the Harvard case included banners flying overhead saying Harvard hates Jews, doxing trucks, loudspeakers of a crudeness that is still hard to believe. But American public conversation is having a terrible time nowadays with serious subjects, period. Our political debate in the country is not a debate, really. It's this 40% lump called Trump We don't know what's really in it. We don't know what drives it. And we haven't figured out a way to find out. But it can be reduced to that one five-letter name. We do not surface arguments we should be having about our wars. Two years now in a proxy war with Russia in Ukraine, and we're losing it at the price of hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian lives, plus this ferociously ugly one-sided war now pressed by Israel on Gaza. And then this eternally live chance in the imagination out there of war with China over Taiwan. It seems to me there's a heartache in American life that we don't know how to talk about. And Harvard is one instance of the proof. I think not knowing how to talk about things that are difficult and encouraging a language of dialogue rather than of back-and-forth fisticuffs, really, is something that the university really needs to focus on. 
and my own sense from talking with Claudine Gay and indeed with Alan Garber is that these things should be encouraged. I mean, diversity at Harvard is simply a fact. That is not like a banner achievement. I mean, our students are diverse, our faculty is diverse. We don't really know how to address the challenges of diversity. Randy, here we are in the Harvard Law School. The nest of the adversarial culture in our world, the proving ground of Supreme Court justices, and you teach them. What can you see about the, the culture of, of substantive argument in our world and what's happened to it? I'm very privileged to teach here at Harvard Law School. I teach a wide range of students all over the political spectrum. They debate, they disagree. For me, the thing about this moment that is most alarming is that we have in the sights of powerful political forces, the universities. I mean, there are a whole bunch of universities in the United States that are public universities that are in states in which the political governors of the states are trying to quite openly uh, prevent certain things from being taught, prevent certain things from being discussed. Now, in the Harvard situation, what you have is a private institution. And what's really frightening, what's really frightening, a rich, the richest, the most well-established, the most well-connected private institution of higher education. And it has been upended. Just last week, the Congress sent Harvard a letter, the same committee that raked those three college presidents over the coals, sent Harvard a letter saying, we want all of your files about how you dealt with the plagiarism accusations, and we want them in two weeks. And then they went on to say, and by the way, you know, your tax-exempt status is on the line. There was some suggestion that maybe there should be some decertification of Harvard. Now, at this point, at this point, as, as I speak, those people probably do not have the power to carry through with those threats. We are, however, in an election year. Yep. And come November, things could change. And these threats that at this moment don't seem to be, you know, have the, the power behind them to be effectuated, maybe in November things will be different. And so it's, it's already having an effect, Chris. Already the temperature of Harvard University has already changing. There are already people saying, well, you know, these progressive left people, we got enough of them, and we certainly don't want any more of them. That's talk. That's out. The professoriate is talking that way. And there's also, we need to recruit from the right and we need to accommodate ourselves more to the American mainstream. Too many people look at us as, you know, being too way out. We've got to stop that. We've got to narrow the distance. It has already had a chilling effect. The chill, as far as I'm concerned, will probably deepen. That's why I'm so alarmed. These institutions are in the crosshairs 
of people who frankly are enemies. They are enemies of pluralism. You talked about the dread. You talked about the the darkness. I must say, I feel like I've been quite naive. I mean, I'm, I'm slapping myself in the face because, you know, for decades I've been reading, I've been trying to take the, the temperature of the United States. I am surprised at the level of ignorance, the level of stupidity, the level of resentment, the level of racism that is clearly in our society. And it might have its hands on the levers of power. It clearly has some power. I mean, Harvard University has been toppled, at least momentarily, by a committee of the House of Representatives. Now, it could get a lot worse. I hope that it doesn't. It might not. But the fact that we're even talking about Harvard University and other universities like it losing their tax-exempt status over ridiculous narratives, the fact that we're talking this way is something of an indictment of our country as it currently stands. I hope, Chris, that we can get through 2024 with a modicum of sense, a modicum of decency. I hope that. But it's a real question. And of course, the Harvard story is, you know, is a, is a part of that, a relatively small part of that, frankly. But I hope that what has happened at Harvard is not a harbinger of a larger story. It could be. Randy, I think that's a wonderfully serious statement of purpose in a very, very uncertain time, and I'd happily leave it right there. We have a lot of work to do. I think we have to learn to listen again, as well as to talk and to argue. Listen much more carefully to multiple levels of psychology and history that play in every conversation, but I'm so glad we had this conversation, and I'm very, very grateful to both of you Diana Eck of the Divinity School, friend for many years, and a wonderful, steadying, broadening influence on all of the people that you meet, Diana. And Randy, we've talked to so many things so many years. You're right there, and we need you there. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Wonderful conversation. Randall Kennedy is professor at Harvard Law School and the author of Say It Loud, on race, law, history, and culture. Diana Eck is a professor of comparative religion and Indian studies at Harvard Divinity School. Her books include A New Religious America. A word to listeners about your part in all this, open source depends on your support. If you haven't done it yet, please think about contributing. Just visit radioopensource.org slash donate and pitch in to keep the world's first and longest running podcasts going strong. Open Source is proud to be a member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-based collective of independent, creator-owned podcasts. Our shows range from politics to art to history to technology. We come together around the principle that independent voices are more important now than ever. You can learn more at hubspokeaudio.org. Thank you. <laughs>